Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful that you've joined us. My guest on today's show, Lucy G., is one of those rare members of Alcoholics Anonymous who found the 12 steps by participating in another program for many years before she finally came into AA. In fact, Lucy's experience with Al-Anon was sufficient enough to help her deal with the alcoholics in her life while her own use and then abuse of alcohol continued completely unabated in the background. So, though she had gained lots of knowledge about the disease, it wasn't until after her kids were grown and out of the house that her own alcoholism took control of her life. Binge drinking, then an ever-increasing dependence on alcohol, assailed her for many years until she finally hit her bottom. Fortunately, because of her attendance as an Al-Anon member of a few open AA meetings years earlier, she found the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, despite some of the similarities between the programs, Lucy still found herself starting at step one in AA, along with the usual struggles newcomers often face. I met Lucy when she first got sober and have attended many meetings with her over the years. Through her quirky early weeks of trying to interior decorate the AA club, Lucy settled down into a solid program, guided by a strong sponsor and supported through the fellowship she quickly embraced in the rooms. At 13 years sober, Lucy has become a model AA citizen and a dependable member of our AA club. Hers is a story I think you'll enjoy, and I invite you to kick back for the next hour with my good friend and AA sister, Lucy G. My name is Lucy, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Lucy. Yeah, that's the right answer. <laughs> I haven't had anybody to get that one wrong yet. Thanks so much. <laughs> Thanks so much for being on the AA Recovery Interviews show today. Uh, you and I have known each other since you came in, I think. And what's been marvelous about that is that um, I've gotten to watch the total progression of your program from an observer's point of view. I've gotten to know you and learn about you, not only from your shares and meetings, but the before and after fellowship. And that's just been a real treat. You came in, you just had a birthday. What was your birthday and how many years do you have? I had 13 years on March the 9th. Let me ask you, how have you gotten through this last year with virtual meetings? I believe that because I have a program, I had a routine Mm -hmm. that uh, it was easy for me, first of all, that Zoom meetings were just seamlessly woven into. I remember Monday we met at Delta in the room. Mm -hmm. Monday night, the mayor Mm -hmm. said no gatherings of 10 or more. Mm -hmm. And Ro and I texted back to each other, let's try to create a Zoom. Mm -hmm. And Jose, our dear late Jose, made the Zoom happen. So having a meeting every day for over a year. Yeah. He was such a such a beautiful man and such a great service to our group and has been for years. But the fact that he opened up his own Zoom business account and then he was the chairperson of the Zoom meeting for the better part of what, six months or. Oh, no, he died uh, in the Easter weekend, April. Yeah, maybe six weeks. It's incredible. Yeah, Yeah. because he was doing it every day. That's why it seemed like he did it a lot more. Yeah. yeah. Nobody knew he was that sick either, did they? No, I think he had, a, had mm-hmm. been to a big family gathering and then the confinement was being 
described so the family got together for one last get together in place of Easter. Mm-hmm. He went to his bachelor apartment and over the weekend he had become very ill, mm-hmm. but everyone had just seen him. So he was by himself for quite a long time and uh, yeah. just was found. They looked for him on Monday. Um, yeah. His brother got the keys to his apartment. And that was just an incredible tragedy. But the gift of it has been that he gave his life yeah. so that there are many people who have become sober within the Zoom format. And I've had several sponsees with you know almost a year now. He was really good at managing the meetings and keeping bombers out and that making sure that he mixed it up, calling on different people every day. And that was a real great piece of service. So from the very beginning, you've embraced Zoom. You've picked up some sponsees. We're coming up on what will become, I think, a transitional point between Zoom and live meetings again. What are your thoughts about that? I believe that because of the elderly, our elderly old timers, meaning longevity and advanced in age, I think it's here to stay on perhaps a reduced level. I don't think anything will take the place of personally being in the room with other alcoholics and experiencing that peace that passes all understanding that only comes from being with the Mm -hmm. others. Zoom has approximated that quite Mm -hmm. well at least for me, you know, I did not resist it and uh, took to it very uh, willingly because I had a lot at stake to protect my family by staying completely orthodox about not going out, being among a bunch of people. Knowing what you know about yourself 12 years before the pandemic and before Zoom, do you think you could have gotten AA in the same way or to the same desire or degree Had you had to start in the program with Zoom? I can honestly say that the the effect Zoom might have had on the Lucy of 13 years ago, um, I was so transformed over Hmm. 12 years that I, you know, I took to it instantly. I think um, there may be people who we may be losing people, but I do know that the entire world yeah. is uh, opened up to Zoom meetings. Mm-hmm. And so I don't have any statistics, but I see it as only being a good gift of the tragedy of COVID. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier that you've picked up some sponsees. When did you first get sponsees through Zoom? During a meeting, I think a young lady said, I just came back in. I fell off the wagon. I... I, I started before Zoom, and and I, I just need someone to sponsor me. And so I left my phone. Uh, I texted her, give me your number, and I will call you. And mm-hmm. so I just contacted her, and she, I worked with her and have continued to work with her. Uh, we went through the steps with masks. This is before we got really, really uh, locked in. Sure. There were one or two occasions where... She was in a crisis, and I did say, would my coming over to your house be helpful? Mm-hmm. She she thought she was just about to drink, and so mm-hmm. um, we distanced, and I just sat mm-hmm. and mainly listened. So, hmm. Was she somebody who you had met previously, or she was somebody you didn't know? 
Uh, someone I did not know. She was here in Houston. Uh, yes. And she、mm -hmm. had been to Delta and probably remembered me from when she had been sober, but not really working the program with a sponsor. Okay. So after you got together with her in person, you had that personal connection. From that point on, did you proceed to sponsor her the way that you would have sponsored her in person? Or I guess the question I'm asking is, how was your style of sponsoring differ differentiated by Zoom? From your live sponsorship, you know, I tailor the way I sponsor to the individual that I'm sponsoring. Not everybody、mm -hmm. has the same、um, level of education or the same.、Um, they may be coming from an entirely different place. So I really accommodate the needs of the person. Some people, tiny print and a big book just won't work,、mm -hmm. and、um, and so I would perhaps. Read to them, and then get writing、uh, writing assignments in their journals. Have、mm -hmm. them report back to me what we, you know, what they got out of that. And then there are certain questions that I ask them that they would just write and、mm -hmm. get back、mm -hmm. to me within a week. But I, I like to work quickly. I don't like to let someone go、mm -hmm. without getting into the steps. Soon as possible. Really, so your approach is to try and get them through all twelve steps within a relatively short amount of time. Well, get them at least、uh, with a sponsor and working on the steps. I spend, I do characteristically spend a long time on the doctor's opinion. Yes, and that was revealed to me when I had、mm -hmm. about six years of sobriety, and I did go through、hmm. uh, the steps again. And spent、mm -hmm. about five months on the doctor's opinion. Wow! With our own recently moved to Philippines, Howard. Right.、Uh, a couple of us basically learned, went through the steps with him because、mm -hmm. the doctor's opinion is truly. They say if you want to hide something from an alcoholic, put it in the very beginning, <laughs> and th that doctor's opinion is. Pure gold. Yeah, and I discovered it for the first time several years、yeah. sober. Howard J,、uh, who's now living in the Philippines, he was very much of a bookster. He was very much the guy who wanted his sponsees to focus on the book and what was in it. And of course, you can't go wrong doing that. The style of sponsorship that you have, would you say that that's a reflection of the way you were sponsored, or have you adapted your own? Ways of sponsoring to the process. I've had several sponsors over time.、Mm -hmm. There have been times when either an area that had not been addressed through the fourth and fifth step needed real full attention. So,、mm. um, my style of sponsoring is I I just believe that we're going to use the big book. Or、mm -hmm. what I've done lately is use the twelve and twelve, because some、mm -hmm. people that language is archaic and the twelve and twelve.、Oh, yeah. So if we're going through the first step, I'll have them read step one in the twelve and twelve.、Mm -hmm. Then we'll go over the doctor's opinion in more detail. But the way I was、mm -hmm. sponsored, it was like nine one one. She. I think I was just so wildly <laughs> needing to be taken through the steps that her style. She called me up. I had left my number with her, and I said I need a sponsor. She said, "All right,、uh, one or two questions. How long have you been? How much sobriety do you have?、Mm -hmm. And can you meet me at Delta? 
come with snacks, a pillow, because we're going to do all 12 steps in that room on Saturday. Oh, my. Bring, bring provisions, bring something to sit down on. Oh, my. And so I had an emergency 911 12-step inauguration. That's amazing. And it was exactly what I needed at the time. Really? Yes. <laughs> I, you know, I, I don't think I've ever heard of anybody doing it that quickly. Uh, in all 12 steps in one day, bring snacks and a pillow. I mean, that is an amazing way to do to work through the steps. But you're saying it's something that you needed. Now, how long had you been sober by the time you did that? Three months. And that Three was months. what she okay. wanted. She wanted to know that I'd been sober 90 days. Wow. She just wanted wow. to know how committed I was to sobriety. And she said, let me know when you get your 90-day chip and then we'll make a plan. And yeah. the plan was as much a surprise to me as, as anything. And I don't know if she necessarily sponsors everyone that way, but she has yeah. a strong program, and she was who I needed at that time. But oh, I yeah. do not necessarily go. I, I found that studying the doctor's opinion and then letting people have the option of starting with the 12 and 12, yeah. mainly because the language yeah. is... Very easy to uh, comprehend. and Yeah, it's a lot more direct. It is. And it covers more yeah. information. I mean, the steps six and seven are covered in yeah. detail, which they are not yeah. in the big book. I have no criticism of the big book. It's perfect. By the time the 12 and 12 was written, Bill W. and the others, they had a good 10, 12 years to be getting feedback about what the big book did well and what it was lacking. Mm -hmm. And I think they've discovered some areas that needed more clarity, more directness, a little bit different approach to them. So I, I think it was written at just the right time after the big book itself had done what it could do to that point. Yes. And I, I think that that's a, that's a good point. So when you got done, how did you feel when you got through all 12 steps with her? Were you encouraged, excited, or what was your feeling after you got done? I genuinely had the feeling that once I, revealing all that was on my fourth step did not happen on that day because it took some courage on my part mm -hmm. to be completely and thoroughly honest. Mm -hmm. And only when she said, do you think you've left anything off of it somewhere down the road? You know, we stayed in touch and talked regularly for mm -hmm. a year or so after that. I realized that there was something I needed to tell her. Sure. Honesty was not something that I really learned how to do or be. Uh-huh. What connections were there, do you feel, between your your childhood and the desire to drink, the need to drink, the whatever kind of led you in that direction? What was going on within your family of origin that may have created that environment? Uh, without being specific, but in a general way, the, the topic sure. of abandonment, uh -huh. mm -hmm. fear of uh, financial fear of the uh, breadwinner, Abandoning put us all in a lot of financial fear. And also, I didn't yeah. feel protected. I didn't feel safe without my father in the house. Mm. That kind of generated a pattern of need to calm myself down early on. I used to eat the little Christmas candies with the liqueur in them, which were plentiful <laughs> at our house. I started early. How old were you when you were eating those little liqueur candies? Five, six. 
Oh, my um, goodness. The sips of beer started as early as three or four as soon as we started going to Stewart Beach in Galveston. Well, with fried shrimp, mm-hmm. all of my family was having uh, beer, the grown-ups, and I would ask for a mm-hmm. sip, and I absolutely loved the taste of fried shrimp and beer, but I didn't drink high wow. volumes of it. It's just I tasted yeah. alcohol very young. But when you're a little kid, you don't need a huge volume of it for it to start affecting you. Did you feel the effects of those small amounts that you were drinking? Probably did, but can't remember that. I, I didn't link it yeah. to that. To me, it was just a beverage that went really well with shrimp. But when there were stressful times, which very often happened at Christmas, the liqueur candies mm-hmm. were a great way to zone out and check out. Now, is there any kind of lineage in your uh, in your ancestors towards alcoholism in the family? Yes, there is. Um, neither of my parents would qualify as alcoholics, but my mother's big sister, by 19 years, raised her, mm-hmm. uh, helped mm-hmm. raise her, and she and her husband were very, very severe alcoholics, and they died as a mm. result of that disease. So... Um, I know if there's a genetic component, definitely there was that. Yeah. Oftentimes in families, the actual cause of death, which later on is revealed to have been alcohol or alcohol-related, becomes quite a secret when the person dies of alcoholism, at least in our generation, I think. Was it that way in your family as well? Yes, absolutely. Never, the the word never came up. If I had a uh, an image of what an alcoholic was, it was definitely uh, a bum under a bridge, eyes, you know, rolled back to the back of his head, and you know, and and dire, dire straits. So, um, when you were a kid and watching that go on in your family, what did you think of that? The, the behavior of the heavy drinking and the and the behavior that you were seeing, what did you attribute that to? Did you draw any connection between the alcohol and the behavior? Um, I didn't specifically. To me, the people mm-hmm. who were in our family, when we gathered, there was such a need for sedation. It, it was just like, uh, you know, swimming in the water that I was accustomed to swimming in. It was definitely just a natural part of the environment. Mm-hmm. I grew up with a lot of sarcasm. I grew up with a lot of mm-hmm. uh, unsupervised time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely affected my life in, in some very serious ways. But as for, yeah. did I ever link alcohol to it? To me, alcohol was what you had at every, in Louisiana, in the morning, milk punch at a nice gathering. Yeah. At a fait dodo, you know, uh, yeah, all sorts of uh, Cajun concoctions. So sure, it was all part sure. of life. It was a part yeah. of, of a very active social life that my mother and stepfather led. But they themselves were not alcoholic. I was. That's interesting. Yeah, and of course, you're one of several uh, Louisianans that, I've interviewed for the show, and it's interesting, the the overlap of your stories. So move us down the road here a little bit from your home life to the point at which you started to drink and what that looked like with regard to either what age or what year in school you were. When did that all start to progress for you? Well, you know, alcohol was 
uh, an early, you know, factored in early to overcoming stress. It was a little mm-hmm. bit part of being a teenager in a in a really great public high school that just kind of had a lot of traditions. And so there were keggers and so forth, but my drinking did not become a problem. It didn't become a problem that I could observe until empty nest, mm-hmm. until my three children were grown. No one believed me when I said that I had joined AA. They just said, I have never seen you drunk, not once. Well, I had started huh. drinking huh. alone. I was divorced. Uh-huh. My youngest child was going off to college. Mm-hmm. And in order to get to sleep at night, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I had become accustomed to a bottle of wine. I went on a birding trip in in uh, February before I got sober. Hmm. And although we'd been marching all day and, you know, very physically active and I should have been very tired, one bottle of wine mm-hmm. did nothing to me. And I'd, I had actually been introduced to AA meetings so, so long ago for a different reason mm-hmm. as a kind of a substitute for Al-Anon right. um, that I, I realized there's sign number one. It's going to take me two bottles to get to sleep. And I became alarmed. Huh. I became scared. And it wasn't long after that that I had my my last binge. Yeah. This period of time between high school and, let's say, your kids getting out of school and being an empty nester and the divorce and everything else, did you consider yourself a normal drinker during that period of time? Or, or when you were looking at your own consumption patterns and so forth, did you consider yourself a moderate drinker? What were you thinking about yourself with regard to alcohol? Myself was very wary of ever becoming an alcoholic because of the terrible demise of my aunt's husband and then Mm -hmm. her condition as she progressed. I was terrified to have alcohol in my home that my children would watch me drinking. Mm -hmm. It, It didn't make sense. I would drink socially, Mm -hmm. but I didn't keep any alcohol Mm -hmm. in the house. So my children never got the sense that I was a regular drinker. Mm. When we went out Mm -hmm. to parties Mm -hmm. and restaurants, Mm -hmm. I definitely had my fill of margaritas. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Probably was inebriated in in front of my children, but they really did not think that I had an alcohol problem. They thought that I'd just run out of, I don't know, (laughs) they just thought I needed needed a career. (laughs) Yeah, I, I get that. I and it get has that. become a career. It's been a great career. That's interesting. The The fact that you were only drinking outside of the house and you weren't keeping liquor within the house, did you then develop cravings for the parties and the things that would take you out of the house? Oh, yes, and cooking, too. Another uh, uh, relationship I had with alcohol was I liked to be the party giver and uh-huh cook so there was if there was an occasion that i was cooking there was plenty of alcohol that was going to either be the beverage for the guests Uh or or part of the cooking of the meal Mm -hmm. i remember this was considered uh, funny um the duchess of windsor Mm -hmm. uh, always says if you get a few lumps in your gravy just take two big wallops of gin and very soon the gravy will be just fine the curdling will go away (laughs) so (laughs) 
that was my philosophy. I yeah. probably served half cooked things and things were probably not completely proper. Um, wow. everyone drank heavily, so they probably didn't notice. We, we definitely, I entertained heavily and I said, I had to stop entertaining when I stopped drinking. I get it. So entertaining became the way to satisfy whatever craving you had to drink more that you couldn't yes. do if you weren't partying, correct? Correct. Yeah, I get that. Wow. So the period of time then between when that was all going on, when that first started going on to when you got sober, what are we talking, 20 years, 30 years? I was 24 when I walked into my first open AA meeting as a as a suggestion for substituting for Al-Anon. A family yes. member was in trouble with the law, mm -hmm. and um, I was more ashamed of that, and I thought, oh, this is... I, I, anyway, someone just said, you know, you might try going to... Uh, to an open AA meeting and they meet at St. Phillips and they're on right. this night. Mm -hmm. I felt so at home. We're, we're talking 27 years between mm. my first AA meeting and the morning that I woke up and realized that I had, that I was ready. I asked God huh. to help me stop. And I related it. So it was 27 years, almost three decades. That's amazing. 1979 to 2008. So that first meeting, that open AA meeting, was that the only open AA meeting you went to at that time? No, I went to a variety of 12-step meetings. Mm -hmm. I went to Overeaters Anonymous because mm -hmm. I was mm -hmm. very much uh, concerned with my weight. Mm -hmm. I had mm -hmm. the inability to tell whether you're heavy or thin. Right. I looked in the mirror and I saw this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I was going, I was treating that particular form of uh, the diseases and uh, mm -hmm. just heard a lot of really fundamentally, you know, good information about AA, but hmm. didn't consider myself an alcoholic. Hmm. That's interesting. I often wonder what it's like for people who are in other 12-step meetings while they are slowly becoming or are already alcoholic, what it's like to be working those programs with your own heavy drinking or your own alcoholism operating in the background. What did that feel like for you? Well, I think I just had prioritized my issues. And more than anything, um, I did not want to you know, overeat or undereat. Mm -hmm. And I've enjoyed the fellowship of people similar to me. Mm -hmm. I think that in my heart of hearts, I knew that probably there would be no downside to stopping drinking, but I just did not see myself as a problem drinker. I hadn't had consequences that came later, closer to the day that I stopped. Broken bones, accidents that had to do with being unstable, being told that I had nearly fallen into a huge fire pit oh, and had been snatched away hmm. um, by my date. Wow. And, um, yeah, knowing the next morning I was told what had gone on and, and I knew it was over. So whenever you were in these programs, it's not uncommon for an OA meeting or an Al-Anon meeting or any of the other 12-step meetings to have people who are also in AA. And, yes. and quite frankly, I think some of the best other 12-step meetings are those that have the AA people in them 
if for yes. no other reason than to just kind of set things in the right momentum. I, I recall the CODA meetings I went to were very disjointed because there wasn't anybody who really had any 12-step experience before going to that program. So it always helped to have AA people in the room. But given the fact that there may have been AA people in the meetings that you were in, did you get close enough to any of them to reveal to them what might be a problem for you that then they would have said something to you about it? Yes. In fact, I think that the person who suggested I was so worried about my brother to go to that St. Philip's meeting uh, was hoping that by suggesting it be on behalf of someone else, that I would Mm -hmm. begin to recognize my own binge drinking at that Mm -hmm. point. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I think it was it was an angel and I can't even remember who it was. Mm. I just know that I walked in there and I understood that they were speaking the truth Mm. and uh, that it applied so aptly to all of my family. Yeah. <laughs> except for me. <laughs> to everyone except me. I was a I was a two step, twelve stepper. I yeah. found out about it and then I tried to get everyone else in to try to yeah. get them in so they stop being so irritating. Yeah, yeah. You get them all on your side so it evens everything out, huh? Yeah. If they're not if they're not drinking, they're behaving nicely and I can just I can just party on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I've heard you talk over the years about the transition from being in Al-Anon to finally going into AA. Can you lead us through the the downward path that you were on before you hit AA, how your involvement with Al-Anon made that an easier or a harder process for you? Yes. I believe that that I was a raving problematic Al-Anon before I became a full-fledged alcoholic. Hmm. Al-Anon is, was where I went for 23 years. Mm-hmm. That was really my home. Wow. Because of choosing a mate that mm-hmm. was alcoholic that I mm-hmm. would just, just spend my whole day trying to control and... Hmm. Uh, order their behavior. And I mean, my ha- not having alcohol in the house was all about me getting my own way. I really and truly became a miserable, temperamental, raging Al-Anon. Hmm. And I went to Al-Anon to save my life. Uh, my children started having behavioral problems. Uh, mm-hmm. This is like getting, this is very deep down honesty sure but i want people to understand uh how children are affected by living in an alcoholic al-anon home yeah when i realized in al-anon what really got me there was tension is harmful Mm -hmm. and i was busted i had caused so much tension by my own behavior Mm -hmm. that al-anon was the perfect place for me to be in order to become ready to end the marriage that Hmm. was I was every bit as much responsible for being destructive as uh, as the the ex-husband but Hmm. my children were damaged by my own behavior by my own disease the Hmm. family disease of alcoholism we'll be right back 
My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, check out my Big Book podcast, the complete unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. The Big Book Podcast is an engaging word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories, including more than 50 rare stories not published in the third or fourth editions. Listen to all 85 episodes anytime, anyplace. Search for Big Book Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Or listen on bigbookpodcast.com. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo, a first edition big book wearing headphones. And we're back. Have your children, now that they're grown, have they availed themselves of any of the 12-step programs? You know, one of my children is interested in Al-Anon, and she definitely, Mm -hmm. actually, she watches the AA Speakers series that you produce. Oh, cool. She studies it from the viewpoint of a child who is affected by AA. And then I read to her, I send her something out of my Al-Anon daily book every day. So I've got one child who the others have managed to be successful or move Mm -hmm. on and geographically relocate, and they're doing fine. Uh One of them became a psychologist. (laughs) And that's great. Yeah, Yeah, one of mine is a psychologist, too. (laughs) So you never know how that's going to work out. So it sounds to me like you spent some time in Al-Anon still engaging in the kind of behavior that got you into Al-Anon. When within that program did you turn the corner and Al-Anon went from something you were using to control your spouse's drinking to actually taking care of yourself? This is something that it took me a number of years to be able to Mm -hmm. uncover. My son came home from his first semester of college and Mm -hmm. was passed out in my brother's front yard. And Mm -hmm. my fear of him being an alcoholic already caused Mm -hmm. me to go to the Center for Recovering Families. And he was 17 at the time. And I Mm -hmm. said, what can I do? What can I do? Uh, I guess he's 17. I still have the right to force him into rehab. But time is running out. And rehab isn't always the option. She asked me one question. She said, to support your son, is there any alcohol in your house or in your life? Do you drink? Do you drink at all? And would you be willing to stop Mm -hmm. um, in order to fully support your son if he goes into rehab? And I was just cold stone busted. Hmm. I realized that's when the final catastrophic things happened that made me realize I was the alcoholic and that my son might have just had, you know, I don't think that he is. I think that he, but he was my blessing. He was like, I couldn't think about myself as needing help, but I went to go get help for him and realized Mm -hmm. that my drinking was definitely a big part of my life. Silent and private. I drank alone. I built a fishing Mm -hmm. camp that was my uh, drinking hidey hole. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So that my hmm. kids were grown, they wouldn't have to worry about mom driving anywhere and getting a DWI. Right. Yes. Right. So it's my son. It's my concern for my son. And when I was mm-hmm. asked point blank, are you willing to stop drinking? I mean, if how much do you drink? And I would just, you know, are you an everyday drinker? Well, no, I wasn't. But I was definitely a binge drinker. And, right. and it, mm-hmm. when the children were gone, I 
drank to go to sleep. So that is mm-hmm. the, one of the, the greatest um, ironies is that mm-hmm. the son that I kind of continued to fret about was really, I have him to thank for mm-hmm. exposing my own alcoholism. And he didn't, I don't think mm-hmm. I ever told him. I don't think, you know, he was, he just had a big weekend and, you know, yeah. went on yeah. about his life. But yeah. So that was, that was a big turning point. That's when I called the only person I'd seen her in the uh, OA meetings and other related mm-hmm. Al Anon meetings. Mm-hmm. The only person I knew who was also at the same time an active recovering alcoholic I called mm-hmm. her one was mm-hmm. Shelley and the other was Janet mm-hmm. they mm-hmm. answered my call and I they knew me from you know from way yeah. back and sure. I said I think I need to stop drinking and I don't know how to start mm-hmm. thanks to Janet she gave me mm-hmm. an assignment right away I was in working the steps pretty quickly mm-hmm. someone found this 911 this 9-11 sponsor for me quickly, mm-hmm. you know, it was within six months after the incident with my son that... Um, wow. That's really interesting. And the progression there from a life in which you were actively involved in Al-Anon to the point at which you get called out on your own heavy drinking or binge drinking and then drawing the connection with your own alcoholism to the extent that you're willing to go into AA was there ever a point at which you thought maybe you could stop drinking because of everything you knew about 12-step and everything else? Was there any point at which you thought you might be able to stop drinking without AA? And did you make an attempt to do that? Or did you, from day one, know what you needed no, to do? I, I, once I recognized, when I just would permit myself to look back on the accumulation of incidents that had to do mm-hmm. with me just happening to be also drunk at the same time, Mm-hmm. It just came to me all at once, and um, yeah. it was a huge spiritual awakening or a come-to-Jesus come to moment. It was very, very sudden, and it was—I have not—I've never even picked up a desire chip because I was too self-conscious about, you know, taking one and then mm-hmm. getting sober, you know, in front of everybody. I was sober for 30 days— before I walked into my first AA meeting as a sober. Really? Yes. I stayed wow. at home. What? I ate candy. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't have, uh, you know, the volume of alcohol that I was drinking apparently wasn't enough to cause real DTs, but mm-hmm. I got sober for 30 days at home, and I called the one person in AA I knew. I said, I'm going to get a 30-day chip, and I don't want to know anybody in the room, tell me a meeting where I will not run into any uh, wreckage of the past. Right, right. So she uh-huh. directed me to a place, and then eventually I found out about Delta. And Delta had, yeah. I mean, I'd been to Delta for open AA meetings tw- 25 years earlier. Yeah, yeah. Back a couple of iterations when it was over on Richmond yeah, there, so right? Yeah, smoking days. Yeah. yeah, back in the smoking days. Wow. So you stayed dry for 30 days because you didn't want anybody to know and then to get your 30-day chip you asked to be directed to a place where you wouldn't know anybody what was the fear um uh, i yeah it's like for the truth to be revealed i think the same thing that keeps you know just the habit of keeping secrets and wanting to control Mm -hmm. the knowledge 
of my yeah, condition. Yeah. I think I could never have taken a desire chip. That would have been bad luck because it would have mm. meant a public commitment that mm-hmm. I don't think I could have held on to as well as if I was privately mm-hmm. staying at home and eating a lot of sweets and drinking a lot of water. And wow. I actually went to someone's 50th birthday party in the wine cellar of, of a club here in Houston when I had uh-huh. about 12 days. And oh I was, so I wasn't craving alcohol, but I just was so uncomfortable. And I'll bet. I, I never risked my sobriety after that. I, I stopped accepting invitations like that for a wow, long that's time. Amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, and that's something that we often have to do because it's just too easy to slip it back into just habitual behavior, if nothing else, or, you know, in a momentary lapse of consciousness, we grab a drink. So I remember you when you first came in to the Delta Club. I remember exactly where you used to sit. I also remember something, maybe you can elaborate on this a little bit. Early on when you would share, one of the things that you would always say was about your Al-Anon experience and how that influenced your going into AA. Can, can you remember what, what you were thinking when you were saying that? What, what what point you were trying to make with, with saying that? I think the hallmarks of, of an alcoholic or someone with the ism is that they mm-hmm. can they live in a state of blame and complaint. And yeah. I needed to have someone else wearing the black hat. I needed uh-huh. to be the Al-Anon trying to yeah. reform the alcoholic. Recognizing it in myself, it was just invisible to me. Mm-hmm. My children said, Mom, we never thought that you drank too much. And I guess I, mm-hmm. I just obscured it and hidden it so well. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I definitely, I mean, yes, Al-Anon had been a huge part of my life when I came in into AA. Mm-hmm. I needed AA. Al-Anon was not where I needed to be when I stopped drinking. At that point, did you literally give up Al-Anon to go full-time into AA, or were you still doing both programs at that time? I was full-time AA with the occasional dropping into Al-Anon. I'd gone as low as I knew I could go, and I didn't want to Uh uh, dilute the devotion Uh and the intensity. I wanted to completely immerse myself in it because I saw what a lie I had been telling myself for so long. Yeah. I wanted to put the black hat on someone else, get them to change and divorce them and just keep on keep on drinking. So Yeah, I I remember you saying just that and changing of hats as you just alluded to. I think everybody in the room when you did that got it because there came a point at which you were done taking care of other people and you now started to take care of yourself. Pointing the finger at. Yes. Myself was absolutely crystal clear described when I know it was Jackie who said, complaint is poverty and blaming is squalor. And we live our lives and we have our children live in lives made up of that if we continue that behavior. Just blew me away. Yeah, that's beautiful. I remember her saying that in in our interviews somewhere along the way. She's, I just love Jackie. Her directness is just like, man, it cuts through. It's just beautiful. So you were in, you got your 30-day chip. When did you meet Rose? I met her at Delta 
in uh-huh. the room that she told me to come with all of my supplies. I met her the day that we started doing the steps. So how long had you been sober by that time? 90 days. 90. Okay, so you started coming to Delta at 90 days? I started coming to Delta at 90 days. So during your first 90 days, were people telling you to get a sponsor or were they telling you, how were you managing your early 90 days of program? Oh, badly. I mean, I was grateful for the fellowship. I was grateful. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, one of my spiritual awakenings was getting invited by the group of girls that surrounded me after I did take my 30-day chip and say, Mm -hmm. this is the first meeting I've been to as a sober alcoholic. Mm-hmm. That the fellowship that they suggested that, do you want to go and have cake and coffee with us? And I thought, <laughs> you mean I can have cake and talk with girlfriends <laughs> and have fun doing that? And, and it doesn't have to be about a drink. I, it, to- it was a revelation to me that there were things other than drinking to do when one got together mm. with a bunch of girls. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. was the truth. It's the bare truth. And so, mm-hmm. yes, food, I did put on quite a few pounds the first year, and I'm sure. grateful for every one of them. Food was a very good substitute for alcohol. Yeah. So you got through the first 90 days without a sponsor. I had a temporary sponsor. Oh, Janet cool. was my temporary sponsor. She, both two girls in a row said, oh, God, I really don't have time. But Janet said, I'll be your temporary sponsor. So she said, oh, that's good. just get on your knees at night. Thank God that uh-huh. you didn't drink. When you wake up in uh-huh. the morning, get back on your knees say the third step prayer, and ask God to help you stay sober. That was Mm. it. That was the beginning of my life in AA. And yes, I did. I started working with Janet before I had my real 9-11 sponsor. Yeah, your 911 call. I always like to ask the question, you know, what your first meetings were like, and did you feel welcome, and and what was attractive to you during those meetings? But knowing that you went went to Delta Club, and having been there myself when you were actually doing that, I know what I perceived was the feeling for you at that time, but can you say how you were feeling during your early meetings? I was fidgety. Uh, I was trying to turn that High Nooners group into a combination of knitting, fiddle practice. I went to the board and asked, can we, like, combine some of our skills and at the meeting? (laughs) I did! (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and they just, they just said, well, you're welcome to put it before the board, but I don't know about that. Then I also walked in and appointed myself interior decorator extraordinaire. Yeah. I absolutely thought, I am so depressed looking down at that carpet. These people, I got sober for these people. They needed me to come into their lives and freshen mm-hmm. this place up. <laughs> and you know that... All the years that I that I that I harangued about it, it got cleaned one time. I, right, I paid Wade right. to clean it, and yeah. he did a good job. And right. to and then it never got cleaned again. That was another six years. Yeah. And then when we yeah. moved to the new place, it just hasn't been an issue. I jokingly say this is very uh, irreverent, but yes. that carpet represents my suffering, and. Yeah. It represents, it's the symbol of when I could accept the carpet. You know, I understood what acceptance truly was. And wow. uh, I did, I really did. I think I went and cut like a, saved a piece of it. Sort of like a, uh, you know, a, a symbol of 
my conversion from a commanding lieutenant to uh, one of many and it's, just not having yeah. it to be any, it can look any way it wants. Yeah, it sounds like a beautiful metaphor for letting go or surrendering yes. that carpet. That's that's amazing. Well, I remember you talking about plants and other things that you were bringing in and, and so forth. But uh, what what's interesting to me is I remember some of the talk around the club back when you were doing that. And people, the attitudes about that were pretty interesting because there were some people who said, let her do it. Let her bring in, you know, let her do, let her bring in a new rug or some, some new flowers or plants or whatever else. But then there were others that said, you know, we need to just, she needs to find her own uh place here. And I'm so glad that you came to that realization about the carpet and about the condition of the place. It was huge. It's such a, I wouldn't, I wouldn't touch anything. I wish there could be a museum somewhere that had that old Delta with that old carpet as a symbol of, you know, hope for so many that saved the lives of so many people. Yeah, and not every AA club, of course, is grungy and grimy. That's but right. <laughs> to somebody who wants an interior decorate, I'm sure it probably seemed that way. But there were lots of us in those days who were wearing business suits to that meeting. And, and of course, they're plastic chairs. They could hose off every now and then. But when the turning point for me early on in my program was from looking at the outside to looking at the inside, it sounds to me that that's what happened for you somewhere early on. Very much so. So you get into AA in um, in 2008, right? March of 2008. What were some of the the major hurdles that you faced in the ensuing years that your program came to your aid or that the fellowship supported or buoyed you up? I believe that working, being actively working the steps, I, you know, I did eventually work them with a couple of other people. Mm-hmm. I think that knowing that meeting makers make it, um, right. really believing in the, the slogans and thinking, mm-hmm. oh, that sounds cute. You know, y'all are just, this is just a bunch of people trying to convince themselves that they're all happy and everything's fun. I was mm-hmm. such a mm-hmm. cynic. I was such a bitch, you know, <laughs> wanting to decorate, wanting to do anything, but just focus on on yeah. recovery. I saw you became very attached to the fellowship along the way, and I've seen the friends that you've made there over the years, and it's almost like a daily commitment that we make to the fellowship, isn't it, to just show up and be there for other people? Yeah, just the fact that it, I have a shelf life of 24 hours I need to renew my commitment. Like every day is a new Mm. day of hope and possibility. And Mm. it's just the concept of dealing, having such a manageable unit of time as 24 hours uh, was just so brilliant to me. It just, it helps me stay in the present. I really don't spend much time thinking about the past or dreading the future. I'm yeah. completely, I feel yeah. completely happy today. No complaints. That's good. And you and I are close to several people in the program who try and focus on 
the present moment and what's happening today. And in doing this kind of interview, it does require a certain amount of uh, looking back. But, you know, we don't want to regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. But still, we need to stay present moment oriented. I'm a firm believer, just like you, that that's, that's an important thing to do. That being said, though... If the Lucy of today with what you know and how you feel about sobriety in your life in general, if the Lucy of today was able to go back and talk to that Lucy who went to the few open AA meetings at that time, knowing what you were like at that time, if, what would you say to, to her at that time? Oh, I would be very tempted to say the event that's going to happen in about five years you can mm-hmm. avoid this will never have happened or, you know, I mean, I could have developed into a mature adult a lot sooner. Mm-hmm. And so I think mm-hmm. I would have been so filled with what could have been that I would have just mm-hmm. said, please don't risk your life just to be with mm-hmm. the in crowd or to be, you know, willing to jump up on the table and put the lampshade on your head. I mean, those sorts of things mm-hmm. were really important to me. And I think that's what I would say. Just there is a much better life. And I I had to work harder for it and delayed it a lot longer than a lot of people do. But that's what it took. I'm pretty stubborn. Well, it takes what it takes. And fortunately, you and I are frequent meeting makers. So we get to see people at all various stages and ages of sobriety. So... For the, for the younger people or the older people who didn't get sober until later on, that's a, that's a good thing to see on a, on a daily basis. It gives us hope. It's never too late. Never too late. Were there any times over the years between when you first got sober and, and today that you ever had the thought of or uh, the desire to take a drink? Or were there ever any circumstances that occurred that got you thinking maybe you'd move in that direction? Really, no. And I very early on, I, I was musing. I know exactly what I'm going to be consuming. There was just this abrupt, no, no, mm. you are not going to drink. You are going to Hmm. stay sober no matter what. There are no instances where I can drink. Was that something that you got from the outside, Lucy, or was that did that come up from within, that sense of no, no, no? Oh, inside, just within. Yeah. And I had to I also had to protect I just did not go in slippery places for a very, very long time. I don't take Mm -hmm. on more than I think that I can manage in a reasonable yeah. way. I do know how to keep boundaries. Uh-huh. I'm really good at not taking on everybody yeah. else's problems yeah. and protecting yeah. my sobriety. I feel like it's a gift. Yeah. I mean, I'm really, I'm real black and white about it. Yeah. Unfortunately, though, you and I both know people who have not been as fortunate as we have to have stayed sober from the beginning. And we do know people, some of whom have had reasonably lengthy periods of sobriety, who have relapsed. And I guess my question to you is, when you encounter somebody, and I can think of half a dozen people that you and I both know pretty well who've relapsed, what do you say to them when they come back? Oh, I just... Uh, well, we don't do hugging anymore. I'm, I'm a big. I used to be a big hugger. Right, me too. I think I radiate warmth and mm-hmm. joy. Like, mm-hmm. wow, it's really good to see you. You know, sure. I have missed you. I, I don't really do a lot of questioning about why anybody. What, what was the formula for moving away from it? We all know it's when you 
cut down on your meetings. It's when you quit calling your sponsor. It's when you uh, go ahead and attend that big uh, reunion where they put you in charge of the the beverages and you don't, you Uh know, you just kind of say, oh, yeah, sure. Um, I protect my sobriety at all costs. And I would say I just warm them. I warmly welcome them and say, thank God, Mm. maybe a life is going to get saved. But I, yeah. you know, it's it's not a guarantee. Yeah, yeah. I'm always very grateful when those people come back because it teaches me what it's still like out there. And I am the guy who will question a man who's come back in after slipping to mm-hmm. say, "So what happened?" I mean, I I know what happened, but I have to I have to bring it up just so it can be talked about yeah. and and de- and demystified, and certainly welcome them back and. The other thing I try and say is you haven't lost anything that you gained the first time. It's just that you have reset your sobriety date. And that doesn't mean that, you, that you've that you gone blank to all the knowledge you had previously. Exactly. It just means that something got in the way of that knowledge and the meetings, not going to meetings. There were things that got in the way of you being able to stay sober because we alcoholics drink. That's what alcoholics do. Now that you're sober and well into the double digits, have you ever noticed or sensed any resistance from people who are relatively new in sobriety to what you have to say to them because you've been sober such a long time? If it comes off as uh, giving people a feeling of seniority, you know, length of sobriety, mm-hmm. it's irrelevant. It's right. the quality of the day that you are in now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because I have seen so many people that just I was in awe of and put on a pedestal because I heard they had 45 years. <laughs> yeah. But they were also people who wore the alcoholic cape and went home and were unkind and yeah. were not at peace with their children. They had not made amends. They were So length of sobriety is not as important as this day, how yeah. well you have spent this day, yeah. How, yeah. how dedicated this day you have been. Sure, and that's a good way to think about it. As we wrap up here, Lucy, we haven't really talked about God or higher power to this point, but I wanted to get your perspective on what your feelings were and how they may have changed towards the spiritual part of your program. I am now more willing and I am more joyous when I Mm -hmm. hear that someone says that they're an atheist Mm -hmm. and that they've been sober for a certain number of years. Mm -hmm. To me, to be closed to anybody, whatever they want to name themselves, God is taking care of them. And Mm -hmm. it's okay if they don't realize it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. AA will work on you no matter what you call yourself if you work it. Mm -hmm. So this guy was, you know, probably some people were bristling. And I just thought, you know, Whatever it is about his personality, he feels the need to differentiate himself. Mm-hmm. Maybe he really is a nihilist. He really believes that we're just moving through space mm-hmm. meaninglessly. But if he's sober and he knows the joy of of not repeating the same mistakes he did, I celebrate that AA is completely, there. there's just no loopholes. Yeah. Everyone can get sober. Everyone can have a good life yeah. by not drinking and build their character and help other people and yeah. feel uh, that there's meaning to their life. Yeah, and that's a beautiful sentiment to have. And I think nothing demonstrates that spiritual connection that you have better than the tolerance you have for people who don't feel that way. 
Right. I think that's beautiful because most people, they may say they believe something a certain way and they're, and they're comfortable with that, but then they'll look at someone who has an opposing point of view and be less than completely tolerant and accepting of that person about it. I mean, there's a place. Uh, I think the only place for being specific about one's faith is yeah. in the lounge or at coffee elsewhere. Yeah. I think meetings are sacrosanct and should not allude to any uh, right. specific faith or even maybe even, you know, bringing up atheism. But mm-hmm. I was so proud of that man because he really did have a good life and he mm-hmm. really did. Maybe it's just the uh, definition of words and the debate about how you define something. He had a good life, and he was a good guy. You know, it was working for him. And I was just so happy to know that everyone can get well, no matter what. And God God will take care of them. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's a beautiful way to think about it. And the fact that even though he may not have felt God's presence, you felt God's presence in his life. And that's probably all the presence that God needs to have expressed, right? And I don't need him to know that I know something he doesn't know. It's like, (laughs) you know, God, you make all sorts of people and they, we come in so many different varieties and have so many different backgrounds. Um, I just, he's sober and he's in a meeting. That's the beauty that I saw. Yeah, that is that is really beautiful. That that's a great way to think. It's also a good way to kind of wrap things up. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, I I love you and you're a beautiful person and you've been a big part of my sobriety for the last 13 years and I so enjoy seeing you over at the club. Thank you, Howard. I feel the same way. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lucy. This has been a lot of fun. I've enjoyed it. Well, I have to. Thank you. Well, my friends, that's it for AA Recovery Interviews. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, please share it with your fellow AAs, sponsees, friends, loved ones, and anyone else seeking a rich and meaningful listening experience. Tell them how to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and other podcast providers. If you really liked it, I'd be most grateful if you can give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It'll help others find us. Visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, where you can listen to every show, share your comments, and also contact us. Join our Facebook group to share your comments about the show and interact with other group members. By the way, to get in touch with Alcoholics Anonymous, simply visit aa.org. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.